Aparuta te samatasatawara yesutawantam pramachantu sadang. I'd like to talk tonight about determination. Determination to practice, determination to stay with the practice, determination to see it through to the end. In Pali, the word determination or resolve is aditana. It's a very lovely word. Aditana refers to this quality of perseverance or staying with making the intention in the mind very strong that we're going to do something and then we have to persevere to move in that direction. We will so easily be distracted, especially if what we're doing is hard. You can see when you sit down to meditate that it is difficult to stay attentive to the breath difficult to stay with our experience. When you get married, at first it feels very nice. You go on a honeymoon, you're having a wonderful time. And maybe after a few weeks, you start to notice something doesn't feel very comfortable. They say, then the honeymoon is over. (laughs) After a year, maybe you even have an argument. It doesn't take that long. (laughs) But if we have made a commitment, then we have determined in our minds This is the person that I'm going to live with. So we try to stick to it. In the old days, people used to take vows until death do us part. But nowadays, this doesn't seem to happen so often. Marriages happen and dissolve very quickly. And even more than that, People tend to just establish partnerships. I wonder why that's happening. Is it because we've lost this quality of aditana in our society? Is it because we so much want to have things go well that we lose our sticking quality? We can't stick to things when they get difficult. Are we running so much after the pleasant experience that we can't support each other through the hard times anymore? Why are relationships dissolving so quickly? This quality of aditana has for its support three things. One of them is dana. Dana, many of you may know, is generosity. Generosity means also being able to give up. So when you're being generous, that means you are 
giving something, a present, a gift, generosity. But as you give something to someone, if you're really giving, that means you're giving up. A real gift is something that you like. If you're trying to make friends with someone, don't give them something that you don't like because it has no value. What has value for you that you give to someone else, that's a real gift. So if we can be generous with our time, if we can be generous with our energy, if we can be generous with our kindness, with good speech, good actions, good thoughts, even if we're tired and somebody is feeling bad, we take an extra moment to comfort them, to support them. Generosity means that we often have to sacrifice. Otherwise, we might think we're being generous, but we're just going through emotion. When you come to the monastery or to the temple and you bring offerings, the best offerings are the things that you might not even buy for yourself. That's the real generosity. When you give something that you value so much. For example, in my travels, especially in poorer areas, I've noticed that people who don't have very much are sometimes the most generous. They give the best that they can. It's very surprising. And then you find that the people who may have an abundance, they're giving in a miserly way. It's really a conundrum why this happens, but it does. So examining the way that we practice with determination means, in the meditation, for example, it means, is our attention to the present moment completely generous? Do we have that kind of mindfulness that is able to sacrifice all the delightful things we want to think about? Can we focus so completely on the breath or the meditation object, even if it's uncomfortable? That's a kind of dana. It's an internal dana, an invisible form of generosity but it is a very subtle and important, significant way of contributing to our generosity to ourselves in terms of giving ourselves fully to the practice. This is what we have to do. So this dana begins with what we're doing on the inside. How much are we living with wakefulness, with mindfulness, with attention to the most subtle things arising in the mind so that we can find out the root of our ignorance. This is the biggest gift we can give to ourselves. The quality of our meditation, the quality of our ability to be focused and present for what is arising in consciousness will actually determine how well we can then practice right speech and right conduct. And how well we can practice kindness and practice dana, 
with each other. How very subtle. Dana doesn't come from outside. It's conditioned by the state of our minds. If we are able to cultivate the perfections, including this quality of determination, aditana means we are giving up paying attention to samsara to focus our minds towards nibbana. You can't have both. If you want to enjoy the delights of the world, we can't wake up to the truth. So it's very important when you're sailing your boat to be on course, to navigate, to determine your direction and stick to it. Have any of you ever sailed? in the ocean or on a lake. Any sailors here? You know that sometimes you have to tack. Sometimes if the wind is too strong, you can't go directly towards it. So in order to fill your sail, you have to go slightly to one direction, then to another, like this. That's what we do when we're trying to be mindful of the breath. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by thoughts of greed. We want to get up and go eat something. Or we're distracted by thoughts of ill will. We're thinking about the terrible thing that happened to us during the day. We're feeling sad or discouraged. And it's hard to concentrate on the breath. So that's a bit like tacking. Okay, we leave the breath for a moment. We go towards that feeling of difficulty in the heart. We tend to it. We care for it. We fill our sails. Even if it's difficult, we bear with it. And our little boat seems to be going off course, but actually we know exactly what we're doing because mindfulness is steering the boat. We are aware of the storm. We know that it's a storm and we know how to steer our way through it. And as soon as we have tended to that difficult feeling, because our determination is to continue to focus, we bring our minds from one object to the other. We veer back towards the right course, heading towards Nibbana. Our pain, our difficulty, our suffering, if we are focusing on it, Even the pain in the knee, you think, what does the pain in the knee have to do with liberation? I don't like it. I don't want to look at the pain in the knee. Study the pain in the knee. The pain in the knee is part of the journey. We can't only have the delights. We pick up the suffering and study the suffering. This is generosity. So giving ourselves to the present moment contributes to staying on course. It is a gift to ourselves if we can keep focusing, keep going, even if it hurts. Even if the marriage looks suddenly like a nightmare, how do we stick with it? We have to examine what's the origin of the suffering. If you're not able 
to stick through the storms, to tack your boat gently, to catch the wind so your sails are full, then of course your boat will go off course. You might even drown. You might lose your direction. You might end up in divorce. You want to bail out, as they say. But if your vessel, if you are deeply committed to each other, if you're deeply committed to the journey, if you're deeply committed to liberation, sometimes you have to make sacrifices. That happens in relationships. That happens in your work situation. That happens in learning about your faults and weaknesses. We have to be honest. Then we can reap the rewards or see that we are actually progressing, going forward. But if all we want is pleasure and delight and joyful experiences, well, a sailor knows that the ocean isn't like that. You want to cross the ocean? You have to go through big waves, very deep waters. You want to go through life with joy and happiness? Sometimes we have to suffer painful experiences, difficult experiences. We want to be patient with somebody else's difficulty or somebody else's tantrum. We have to be aware of the tantrums within ourselves. If we have no quality of aditana, if we're not able to renounce having our own way, our selfish desires, to pay attention to what the other person wants or needs, then we will never be able to make peace with each other. So this quality of determination coupled with the ability to renounce, renunciation. And this leads to the second important support for the journey, discipline that helps us in our resolve, in our resolution to continue on the path. Being really resolved, you resolute, you don't give up easily. If you give up easily, then it's just a loose partnership. As soon as it's not profitable, then you quit. I'm not saying that there are situations that don't merit giving up on. There is such a thing as wrong sacrifice. But we have to really study the situation. We have to use some wisdom and really give it our best before we just abandon it. Discipline means disciplining, restraining, giving up our selfish desires, sacrificing, making sacred. But we have to tack. We have to discipline our minds to steer our way through. So discipline is strongly connected to this quality of renunciation. Discipline means taking up 
guidelines, precepts, boundaries beyond which we don't cross. In terms of Buddha Dhamma, that means practicing harmlessness. That was what we were doing at the beginning. We took the five precepts. That establishes for us a real highway, a very clear path to travel upon. It's not a casual going forward, but there are clearly defined limits beyond which we don't go. In the monastic life, there are certain principles or certain rules that we undertake, and if we go beyond them, then we're out. We have to give up the road. In a marriage, there are certain vows that you make to each other, to support each other, and you don't transgress those vows. And if you do, you have to be called to be responsible for your actions. You can't blame the other person. You have to take responsibility. The same is true in the meditation practice. We have to discipline our minds. Actually, this internal discipline is so important for enabling ourselves to keep our attention on the object. So we know that Effort, mindfulness, and concentration are going to be the pillars of moment-by-moment attention to the object. So if your mindfulness is not sharp, if it's going off, getting caught up in lovely thoughts or ideas, past and future, then we're not restraining the mind enough. We have to be so vigilant and so clear pointing ourselves continually towards Nibbāna and away from samsāra. So that's the quality of discipline. Discipline means direction. Just like a conductor of an orchestra. What happens if the people that are in the orchestra don't follow the conductor? Do they make any music? It sounds a little bit distorted or out of key. What is harmony? Harmony is when we are moving together. It means unification. It means being in alignment, reconciled. Doesn't that? So when all the mental factors are working towards awakening, then there is harmony in the mind. If we have not been able to discipline ourselves in body and speech, now just see the importance of the relationship between sila or moral commitment on the outside to the harmony in the mind. if we are practicing unskillful speech, unskillful conduct, and then we sit down and try to meditate, our minds will not be peaceful. It will be impossible to pay attention with a pure heart to our inner experience because we will be full of agitation and restlessness. The heart will be wild. 
at some level, depending on if we've done something really gross, then very wild mind. If we've done something not so unrefined, we'll be more peaceful, but still, there come to a certain point, we will be unable to go deeply because the heart is not pure enough. The purity of our mindfulness, the purity of our concentration, even the purity of our effort depends upon how skillfully we're living. This is all tied up with discipline. So, being able to restrain ourselves in how we live, if we're able to live with each other in harmony, abiding by the principles of kindness, harmlessness, honesty, integrity, this reflects back into our daily practice, our meditation practice as well. The harmony in the mind, this leads to samadhi, which is about the unification of the mind. You want to have a strong, still experience in the heart? There's a connection. So realize that whatever we do on the inside reflects outwardly. Whatever we do on the outside again reflects inwardly. And the third thing that helps us in our resolve, in our resolution to continue on the path is this quality of perseverance. Being able to persevere means defeating, we talked about dana, discipline, and defeating desire. That's the hardest thing of all, probably. Because most of the time we are trying to run after the things that we want. So it's very difficult to die to our desire. Very difficult for us to find what will support us to realize what we really want. Desire in itself, craving, takes us away from what we really want. What we really want is the ending of desire. In order to be able to defeat desire, we have to empty ourselves again and again. The quality of emptiness in the mind is what brings us back to the present moment. As you could see when you were meditating, if you're thinking about something, your mind is full of what? It's full of thought. But as soon as your mind is empty of thought, empty of desire, then you can really give yourself to the present moment. I notice that when I stand with my alms bowl and people come to put food in the bowl, if my mind is full of thoughts, then I'm not really begging. I'm standing there, my bowl is already full. It's full of what I want. 
people are standing and waiting to put things in my bowl. But if I'm not paying attention, then am I really able to receive their offerings? So the bowl for me is a wonderful symbol of the way that I need to stand or sit in front of the present moment to really receive the jewel of wisdom that is waiting to be revealed to me. So the empty alms bowl is a tremendous symbol. I stand there and sometimes people want to put things in my bowl that I see. If I stand there with a mind that is full of desire, I can say, oh, I don't like that. I don't want that. But that's not the right attitude. To be a beggar, I have to be willing to stand there without any wish at all. There have been times when I've stood on the street and I've received nothing. So I remember standing and, you know, we only have a certain amount of time before we have to give up eating altogether. At 12 o'clock, that's it. One time I was standing in Wellington in a cold time, cold time of year, and it was windy, and uh, I was a little bit shivering. And nobody was putting anything in the bowl. And I stood for an hour, and I felt very cold, and my mind was caught up with all these thoughts. Will I be fed? Will anybody put anything in the bowl? And... As long I noticed that at a certain point I realized that I was I wasn't meditating. I was just wanting to be fed. So I wasn't really an alms mendicant in that moment. I was standing there, I looked like an alms mendicant, I had the bowl, the robe, the shaved head and all the rest of it. But my mind was full of desire. And it was very interesting. There was the bowl empty and suddenly I realized, can my mind be as empty as this bowl? As soon as I realized that, I was able to just focus on the emptiness of the bowl and the feeling of gratitude came over me. And I I thought, okay, it doesn't matter. Even if I don't get fed, I have the opportunity to stand here and feel the gratitude that I can do this. I can stand here just like the monks and nuns did 2,500 years ago, walk in the village with their bowl. Here we are in the 21st century. Isn't it amazing that there are still monks and nuns wandering around with bowls and robes in the same way that the Buddha did? So I really, at that moment, was no longer thinking, I'm hungry, I need to be fed, it's cold. I was just feeling gratitude. And suddenly, I looked down and there was a man bowing on the sidewalk. Bowing on the sidewalk. And he put a meat pie in my bowl. Before I became a nun, I was a vegetarian. (laughs) And the very first thought that came in my mind, I knew it was a meat pie. The very first thought that came in my mind was, meat pie. 
That's not a generous thought. And it's a thought so there wasn't the discipline. And I had not defeated desire, had I? But because I was full of gratitude, I realized very quickly, excuse me, this man, you don't even know him, just came and put a meat pie, bowed on the street, put a meat pie in your bowl, and the gratitude returned. My mindfulness returned. I felt awash with happiness. doesn't matter. Meat pie. I can nibble the crust. I don't have to eat the meat. It's still, I can receive the gift that this person has given me. In that moment, suddenly, I was feeling incredible generosity towards him. Thank you. And ability to chant a silent blessing to him. And as soon as my mind was feeling gratitude, I was no longer wanting to have a banana or whatever. I was grateful for meat pie. It's not what I wanted. This choicelessness as a nun, choicelessness as a samana, is a serious thing. We don't choose what we get. But we choose to live this way. So if people give us what we don't want, and we can observe the complaining mind. It doesn't mean that we're forever and ever not going to have a complaining mind. But it means that we keep coming back to the fact that I have chosen this. When you enter a marriage and then the honeymoon is over and you don't like what you're getting, you have to remember, I chose this. Can you be choiceless? How much kindness can you bring to the situation? How much generosity can you bring back to the situation? How much restraint can we restore to our mind and heart so that we can contribute to bringing back peace to the situation instead of divorce? Had enough, I'm fed up, I'm out. Sure, I could put down my alms bowl and go back to lay life and eat whatever I like. But I didn't choose that. I had the opportunity to choose a way of renunciation. And in order to support that renunciation, I need to have enough determination in my heart to keep going even when it feels impossible. I'm cold. I'm getting a meat pie (laughs) or whatever. Or maybe sometimes people want to put money and I have to say, no, 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 I don't use money. So the bowl is empty. I have had to walk away with an empty bowl. And taking away that emptiness to me was a sign of what I needed to work on in my own heart. I took it as a sign that, hey, you haven't perfected your mindfulness enough to be fed. So then you should eat the emptiness. That's a meal. It is. It's enough of a meal to reflect on. There are people hungry in this world. Can I be hungry with them? Can I practice a few moments of compassion? It's only till the next day. I trust the Buddha enough to feed me tomorrow. Because I have a faith that I will be given the support 
that I need to keep going. So determination is yes, when it's difficult, when it feels impossible, I take a deep breath and I, I find a gift from what feels impossible. I find the blessing in what seems to defeat me. I try to defeat craving to uphold the wholesomeness in my mind, to uphold the brightness in my mind, to uphold my love of Dhamma, my love of truth. So then the emptiness is a sign of Nibbana because Nibbana is the total emptying our hearts of everything that is impure. And as long as I'm holding an impure thought in my mind, my bowl will be full of what? I might have food, but I will be full of craving. But if I come to the, the, the Pindabhat, the alms mendicant moment, if I come to the moment with a pure heart, empty of this craving, this desire for something, some reward, some consolation, then I may not be fed material food, but I have received the food of love. And that's enough fuel to keep going. Then I don't have to divorce myself from this practice. So I believe that I want to die in these robes. To do that, I have to be worthy. Most of the time when we come to the present moment, we want something from the breath. We want a pleasant experience, a joyful experience, a blissful mind state. But to really understand the nature of this mind, the true nature of this mind, we have to die to our desire for pleasant experience. We have to be empty enough We just have to love the moment exactly as it is. I have to tell you, though, that after the meat pie, I received bananas, apples, lots of fruits, and I went and sat in a cemetery. And I had so much food that I could feed the birds and other creatures. Abundance. Abundance. You see, it's a powerful, mysterious thing that when you devote yourself completely with loving kindness, trust, confidence, purity of heart, determination, not giving up, you get much more than you could ever dream. But you have to give up something. You have to give up something that you value and love in order to get those gifts. It's a mysterious process. You don't have to be a monk or a nun to discover that mystery. I'm sure that you've discovered it in your own lives. So whatever vehicle you happen to be in, whether it's a monastic vehicle or a household vehicle, the real work happens 
when we really apply ourselves, never give up what is sacred to you. Never give up on what you love. If you're loving without attachment, without clinging, with a pure heart, if what you love is true and worthy of your devotion, now examine your life. How do you spend your time? Each of us knows what we are devoted to. If we're devoted to something that is worthy of our devotion, never give up. If we're devoted to something that's not worthy of our devotion, maybe you want to rethink. Just like when we're meditating, if the mind is wandering, we don't want to be devoted to wandering mind because it doesn't lead anywhere. You can think for a hundred years and you'll never be enlightened. Thinking is not the way to liberation. But if we devote ourselves to the emptiness, to emptying out the mind of thought, that is worthy of our devotion. Then you can see the results moment by moment, day by day, year by year. Do you have any questions? Giving up um, a negative experience that we've been dwelling with for a hundred years. To be able to give up what we think is the enemy, we have to give up our aggression towards that enemy. There is no enemy, really, except within us. So if we're really studying our hearts, then we realize that the hostility begins here. The hatred is, is the source of our dukkha. It's not out there. So the person that we feel is causing our misery is not causing the misery. But it's the way that we're holding that experience, that person, the way that we're holding the world even. The source of it all is within us. So if we can recognize the way that we're holding it, But this is not easy to do. We have to look in a different way. To look with joyfulness or just lack of tension. With ease. To soften the aggression. By softening aggression, what happens? If someone is angry at you and you don't resist them, if you just behave in a quiet way, a polite way, but we're being attacked by our own hostility in the heart, our own negativity. It leads to inner destruction. It's the death of joy. How can joy land in a place that's on fire? How can the mind be unified when our energy is scattered or agitated or hostile? How can we realize samadhi, the stability, the balancing of emotion when we're emotionally on fire or wild? It's like a storm. We want to still the heart. So we have to practice loving kindness. Loving kindness unifies the mind. The harmonizing like the orchestra. 
you want all the musical instruments to make a beautiful sound, then there has to be harmony. All the factors of the mind have to come into harmony. So one voice, not many voices. Then it's music, then it's a song, then it's a sweetness, it's a joy. Otherwise it's just the antithesis of that. That's not peace, that's war. Even boldness has become fashionable. <laughs> when I was a young nun, bold woman, it was really bad. People used to always say, if they didn't make some derogatory remark, it was, oh, I'm so sorry. Because they thought I had cancer and I was getting chemo. You want to be beautiful on the outside. Do you know that in the monastery, we don't even have mirrors? We're not supposed to be looking. This face, how much time do we spend looking in the mirror? How many wrinkles? Oh, there's a spot there. And it's not chocolate. It's age. You start having many pimples, spots, wrinkles, these lines, the jowls start to drop. The hair is like this, it's like that, it's red, it's blue, it's... How much time does it take? How much money? We have shampoo, we have conditioners, we have softeners. (laughs) We wanted to smell like apples, like lavender, (laughs) like chamomile, like cucumber. How much, how many millions of dollars are spent on shampoos and hair tonics and dyes and dryers and all the paraphernalia that goes on with hairdo. Now you're going to tell me, well, you use a shaver, don't you? I use the hand razors. There's the dual razor, the triple one. Now there's a quadruple one. (laughs) It's supposed to be the fast track, the the super track. (laughs) It's constantly being improved on. That one's up. I had a wonderful shaver, a single edge one. You can't even get them anymore. They're obsolete. It's business. But this is a sign that we have turned away from vanity. We don't want to attract attention to the body. So it's a sign that hair is not important. But then, even though you give up having a hairdo, you're still looking to see, is it smoothly shaved? There's a few bits. I remember when I was a young nun in Burma and I was first learning how to shave. We shave our own heads. So I was first learning how to do it. That's when we do use a mirror. And I learned how to use the cutthroat, that blade that goes out like this. And then, so I cut myself so many times. I was just a mess. And then I was meditating in the hall and the Burmese nuns at the end of the meditation they were all coming up and pointing because I had left out a little tuft of hair. And they were giggling and laughing, pointing to this, and I felt that I was so embarrassed. You see? Even then, we're shaved and all the rest of it, giving it up. But we can still be self-conscious because we wanted to look good. We wanted to be beautiful. Then people can come and say, Oh, I like the shape of your head. 
because we're so it's so difficult to give up the sense of self. When you shave your head, I don't use shampoo anymore. I don't use conditioner. I try to decondition my mind. I'm using the conditioner of mindfulness and clear comprehension. Sati Sampajanya is my conditioner. <laughs> if you were to go into business and say, use Sati Sampajanya, <laughs> nobody would buy it. But this is to decondition myself of the bad habits of worrying about, do I look good? How many moments a day do we spend worrying about how we look? Am I wearing the clothing? Does it match? The shoes, the purse, the jacket, the tie, the whole thing. When you go for a job interview, you have to. You have to dress up. If you were to dress like a homeless person, you wouldn't get the job. It's, let's face it, we have to be practical. But as a nun, I don't go for a job interview. I've got a permanent employment here. <laughs> I don't change my clothes. You know, it's the same thing every day. Actually, the sameness, see, it's not a fashion statement anymore. For me, wearing the robe is a gift. It's my skin. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing is, where are my robes? Did I hang them nicely? Are they clean? I feel so happy to be able to wear my robes. Same thing every day. I don't have a selection, a different shade. and But that's a gift. I've given up what to most people looks like, gosh, you only have one or two pairs of shoes. You only have one of each of the main robes. And the rest are called work clothes or service cloths that we wear just uh, when this is dirty. But for ceremony or for official occasions, we have only one of each. And we wear them until they're worn. We don't really want to look shabby because people will lose faith. I remember one time I was sewing patches onto my sarong, the skirt. And one of the ladies who was visiting the monastery saw me doing this. And it was already very, very patched. But I was so attached to it. I loved it. And she immediately went out and bought me some material to make a new robe. And I watched my mind. I was so attached to this patched up piece of cloth. Even you think that you've given up, you renounce the world, you renounce so many pleasurable activities, you're standing with the bowl, you're not minding what people put in the bowl, you're not wishing for apple or banana, you happily eat meat pie. But then, to give up the patched up robe. <laughs> Our attachment is the most difficult thing to give up, even if it's just a worn out piece of cloth. And we're still attached to how does the robe fall? Does it look elegant? Even after you've given up the things of the world, you still look to see, does it look nice? Is it beautiful? Is it pleasing? Is it what I want? This ego we keep reconstructing over and over again, and it's getting reconstructed based on our attraction, 
for something, aversion for something else, or our confusion about what is real, our inability to understand the true nature. This is impermanent. This is going to die. Because it's death-bound. We are all death-bound. What are we dressing up? The only thing that will lead us to what is not death-bound is to realize the ultimate pure state of Nibbana in the heart. Yes. Compassion. But you can't solve the problems of the world. The world today is full of violence. It's full of hatred and greed and delusion, just as it was 2,500 years ago, 5,000 years ago. But what's different now, of course, is the escalation and the information. We know so much more than we used to know. In the old days, the farmer had his field, plowed his field, lived his life, tended to his family, took birth and died in the same village. And may not have known about what was going on in the world around him, that world that was burning with greed, hatred and delusion. As I mentioned in the talk on Sunday night, the Buddha came in front of a group of drunkards and asked them, why are you smiling and laughing when the world is burning up with the fires of greed, hatred and delusion all around you? Why don't you take refuge in something that you can depend on? That was millennia ago. The same kind of things were happening. We cannot change the world. But the real peace in the world comes by tending to the war that is happening within us. Where is the unhappiness that's in me coming from? Where is the violence in me coming from? Am I at peace? Am I at war? If I'm thinking of someone from the past with an angry thought, then there's still war in me. Because if that person walks into the room, what will I feel? Will I feel happy? No. I'll feel scared or I'll feel nervous. But if I have truly forgiven, if I have truly realized the peace that this heart is capable of realizing there will be no one from past, even from past lives, that I will hold any residue of ill will or anger towards. If we can achieve that state, then we add a dimension of peace to this world. If everyone in this room, if everyone in this town, if every family were able to establish peace within ourselves, between each other, then this is the real basis for peace in this world. So each of us has to tend to our own little field and make sure that we're planting flowers, not weeds. That we're planting grain, 
and not poison. Something that we can nourish ourselves with. Something we can eat. Something that's wholesome that will help us to grow and live together in mindfulness, in wisdom, in joy. That's our gift to the world. It starts with the gift we give to ourselves by sitting down and examining who am I? What am I doing with my energy internally? And how is that unwholesomeness spilling out towards others? So that's how when we take care of the own little plot of land, like the analogy of the leaves at the end of the broom, just sweep what you have in front of you, clean out your own house, clean out your own mind. That's the root of the dukkha, the root of every suffering is within us. We have to recommit ourselves to that undertaking. That's why the precepts are so important. We can never fulfill the path of holiness without a commitment to virtue and kindness. We cannot do it without an understanding about the danger of desire, selfish desire. Which means we have to be aware of how our wish to look good can influence our decisions, can make us compromise our principles. So sometimes we have to renounce even something that we think might give us pleasure for the sake of doing something noble and worthwhile, for the sake of gaining some wisdom or strength to keep going, to make somebody else feel more trust in us Maybe we have to sacrifice so that there can be peace in the home. If we act only selfishly, that may create dukkha, suffering for someone else. So always examine the decisions that we're making. What are they based on? Are we making peace or war? Are we hurting or are we supporting? Are we hurting ourselves or are we acting with wisdom? And it all comes back to the practice of tending the temple of the heart. You've got me going now. (laughs) But I think it's late and maybe I should stop.